My dear brethren and sisters, in a week or so's time, we will be in the company of Job, and we will see him reduced by a succession of calamities to pass out through the city gate to sit on the rubbish tip with other social outcasts. His body is by now afflicted with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Now he has been stripped of his immense wealth and property. His children have been cruelly destroyed. The only advice forthcoming from his wife, he should curse God and die. And so Job seeks release from his suffering by scraping himself with a broken piece of pottery. It would be difficult to conceive of a greater reversal in the circumstances that befell righteous Job. And yet, somehow, Job manages to retain his integrity and his dignity. So he admonishes his wife, Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? As the central character of this book, the spotlight turns on Job's response to God's hand weighing so heavily upon him. How can Job's very obvious disfigurement and distress be reconciled with the justice of a righteous God working in the lives of his children? Was Job's faith really futile, as suggested in Satan's answer to the Lord? Satan says, Doth Job fear God for naught? And so the ensuing debate between Job and his three friends seeks to find a rationale for the problem of suffering when it impinges on the life of a righteous man of God. But the argument can never be theoretical, can it? When suffering Job is present um, on the rubbish tip and contributes to the discussion. Well, understandably, Job himself was puzzled by his predicament. He says in chapter 10, he says, My soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say unto God, Do not condemn me. Show me wherefore thou contendest with me. Thine hands have made me and fashioned me together round about. Yet thou dost destroy me. The three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, they had come to console Job, but they argued from 
the misconception that there must be an exact correlation between sin and the degree of suffering. To their mind, Job's great suffering was indicative of the measure of his guilt. So his suffering must in some way be linked with some specially grievous sin. And so, chapter 4, Eliphaz reasons, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous uh, cut off? They that plough iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. And similarly, Bildad the Shuhite in chapter 8, he harshly tells Job, If thou were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitations of thy righteousness prosperous. We suspect that for Job, the unjust accusations made by his three friends were far more painful to bear than his physical suffering. And so it was that, sorely provoked by their insensitive analysis of his plight, Job explains uh, in chapter 16, Miserable comforters are ye all. Shall vain words have an end? They have gaped upon me with their mouth. They have smitten me upon the cheek reproachfully. They have gathered themselves together against me. God hath delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over into the hands of the wicked. So understandably, he came to resent their interference and their false arguments. Job says in chapter 13, Surely I will speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. But ye are forgers of lies, ye are physicians of no value. Oh, that ye would altogether hold your peace, and it should be your wisdom. Yet, marvellously, Job's own faith remained robust to the end. As he goes on to declare in the 13th chapter, Though he, God, slay me, yet will I trust in him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him, and he also shall be my salvation. If Job has a fault, it is his tendency to justify himself. So certain is he that one day his own righteousness will be vindicated. As he goes on to say, Behold now, I have ordered my cause. I know that I shall be justified. In this context, many of his statements are reminiscent of the Jews condemned by the Apostle Paul, going about to establish their own righteousness. 
So Job says in chapter 17, The righteous also shall hold on his way, and he that hath clean hands shall be stronger and stronger. Chapter 37, My righteousness I hold fast, and I will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. Chapter 29 I put on righteousness and it clothed me and my judgment was as a robe and a diadem. Right at the beginning in chapter 4 Eliphaz asks the question Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker. So it must be significant that the long drawn out debate ends with the observation these three men cease to answer Job. Why? Because he was righteous in his own eyes. Brother Lovelock comments in his study of the book of Job and its message, So certain is Job of his righteousness that he is prepared to argue the injustice done to him even before God. Yet so certain is he of the absolute justice of God that he will not depart from his ways, come on him what may. Confident that a godly man must be saved. Much of Joe's perplexity springs from these two irreconcilable convictions. But we think we should avoid being too harsh on Joe, because he lived a long way back, most probably in the latter part of patriarchal times. He didn't enjoy the benefit we have today, of being able to read the scriptures, a complete revelation of God, about God and his ways. I wonder who of us, in Job's shoes, would have the strength of will to hang on to our faith and refuse to renounce God. Because in spite of everything, Although Job may curse the day of his birth, although he may feel that he has been treated unjustly, yet throughout his ordeal he refuses to curse God. So clearly, Job's concern from beginning to end was not his own wealth, health, or his own wealth. His concern is his personal relationship with God. As the contributor to the Tyndall commentary observes, there is one important respect in which Joe's speeches differ from those of his friends. They talk to Job about God and Job too talks about God. But Job is trying to retain or recover his lost 
friendship with God. His prayers may shock his religious friends, but at least he keeps on talking to the heedless God. His friends talk about God, but Job talks to God. That's a very succinct summary of this discussion. Job's friends talk about God, but Job talks to God. That is the difference. So to read through this long debate makes us realise man's inadequacy on his own to explain the reason why he suffers. Lots of words, some true, others speculative and inappropriate when applied to righteous Job. So how true God's indictment at the end, at the end. Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? The address of the young man Elihu is a very effective bridge between what has gone before and God's reply out of the whirlwind. He had been, Elihu had been angered by Job because he justified himself rather than God. And he was also angered by the three friends because they had found no answer and yet they had condemned Job. The fact that Elihu, unlike Job and his three friends, is not censored by by God, should make us listen carefully to what Elihu has to say about the purpose of suffering and the essential righteousness of God. For example, in chapter 36, Elihu says, Behold, God exhorteth by his power, who teacheth like him, who hath enjoined him his way, or who can say, Thou hast wrought iniquity. Remember that thou magnify his work, which men behold. Every man may see it, man may behold it afar off. Behold, God is great, and we know him not, neither can the number of his years be searched out. And Elihu's words conclude, touching the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. He will not afflict. Men do therefore fear him. He respecteth not any that are wise in heart. And earlier Job had appealed, O that one would hear me. Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me, and that mine adversary had written a book. Well, Job has his request as God replies to Job alone, not to the free friends, just to Job.
And what is most striking is that God does not feel it necessary to systematically answer all the points raised earlier in the debate. In fact, he completely ignores the views expressed at such length and with so much conviction by the four protagonists. And so, the manner of God's answer it really exposes the inadequacy of human thinking to to comprehend the problem of suffering. And it was out of the whirlwind that the Lord answered Job alone. He tells him to gird up thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. It's interesting that the Hebrew word used for man here is Geba. And Geba demotes man in his strength as a combatant. But how unequal the contest as Job cowers before the ferocity and the noise of the whirlwind. And God asked him, Where was thou? when I laid the foundations of the earth. Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who hath laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. So the direction of God's answer, appealing to his own supremacy, his own power in the world created um, in the beginning and sustained by his spirit. His answer talks about natural laws and phenomena outside man's comprehension. Such wonders as the snow, the hail, the wind, the rain, the lightning, frost and ice. These are mysteries really too great for any man to understand. Because Job hadn't been present at the dawn of creation, and he was uninitiated in the complexity and the wonder of creation. But how effectively God's reply strips man the contender down to size. Chapter 40, God says, Moreover the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Then Job answered and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. And so by the time God had finished answering 
Job out of the whirlwind. Job was ready with great humility to confess his faults. How foolish he had been passing judgment on what God was bringing to bear on his life. If God's wisdom pervades the world of nature, then surely that same wisdom could work for good in the harsh and often baffling experiences of life. And so in chapter 42, Job now says, I know that thou canst do everything. No thought can be be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understand not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. And Job then says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself in dust and ashes. So the counsel of those three friends, however well-intentioned, had only led to controversy and despair. They had been unable to come up with a satisfactory explanation for the sufferings experienced by this righteous man of God. In the New Testament, James writes, Behold, we count them happy which endure. We have heard of the patience of Job, and we have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. So this morning, we have tried to trace the development of Job's patience and his understanding until at the climax of the book he testifies but now mine eye seeth thee and we can trace the development of this full understanding by chapter 19 Job acknowledges that the hand of God have touched me By chapter 23, Job states, He knoweth the way that I take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. But it's only in chapter 42, right at the end, after God's reply, it's only then that he fully submits in fear and trust to the wisdom and the goodness of God. So from feeling uh, a touch, from knowing the point of trial, it's only at the very end of the book that he is able to say, But now mine eye seeth thee. In fact, God had been at work behind the scenes, using suffering to correct attitudes and to develop character. Now, with the eyes of his understanding fully opened, Job was able to see God in those trials which before had so stretched his faith and endurance.
And I think you would agree that as we get older in the truth, so inevitably suffering features more and more in our lives. It's true to say that if we have been able, like Job, to come to see God at a very personal level, to see God using trial to shape our characters, then we will be the better able to endure the restrictions and the frustrations that life under the curse throws up. And that's when we apply the knowledge acquired from reading the scriptures to the bitter experiences of life under the curse. In the words of Psalm 90, So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make me glad according to the days in which thou hast afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. But we will come to rejoice in affliction only if we have seen the need to be exercised by the chastening hand of God. The same voice that addressed Job out of the whirlwind still speaks to us today as children. Quoting from the New International Version, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardness as discipline. God is treating you as sons. And as Job was disciplined by the sore travail, he felt that everybody and everything was against him. And that's how we feel, isn't it, when we are going through particularly dark periods in our lives. But God hadn't deserted Job, neither has he abandoned us. The book of Job helps us to see the Lord's discipline in the darkness and to fill him in the tempest while it is raging. Because though weeping may endure for a night, joy cometh in the morning. What is so hard for us to appreciate is that the future joy is prepared by the weeping now. So as we now come to partake of the emblems, we are reminded that Jesus himself underwent exactly the same process as Job did and as we do today. For in bringing many sons unto glory, in Hebrews we are told, the captain of our so the captain of our salvation, he was made perfect through sufferings. And again in chapter five, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things 
which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So in Jesus, we can see the problem of suffering resolved. And Paul assures us, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The opening verse of the book of Job describes Job as perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. How suitable Job is as a type of Christ who also was made perfect through sufferings. Because there are so many ways in which their lives compare. They both shared the human condition. They were both exercised by the sore travail. They were both held in high favour by God and yet rejected by their kinsmen. Both walked through the valley of the shadow of death. The end of the book, God reminded Job that he, he himself, Job, wasn't present at the dawn of creation. Neither did Jesus pre-exist. Before Job's metaphorical death, when he lost everything, the burnt offerings he made were unable to save his children. But once his fortunes revive and the Lord blessed the latter end of his life, then Job successfully mediated for his three friends. And similarly, before his death, Jesus couldn't save anyone. His work as a high priest commenced when by his own blood he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. For Christ is entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The final scene of all Joe's brothers and sisters and acquaintances coming to eat with him in his house, that reminds us of Jesus' promise to his disciples when he kept the Passover in the upper room before he suffered. His promise, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And we ourselves, we will be there if we have followed Job's example of patience and perseverance in the face of suffering. The end will be brought about by the kindness and the love of God, our Saviour, towards men. Our salvation has nothing to do with any works of righteousness which we have done. For everything, we depend on Jesus Christ, who of God 
is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. <laughs> 